This is a Diet of Brussels. The following is an interview with Raoul Uberreken, who's a director in the Director General for Justice and Home Affairs in the Council of the European Union. I was speaking with him uh, in a slightly noisy bar, which is not the best place for an interview, uh, last week um, on the fringes of the European uh, Council. Um, he's speaking in an individual capacity. Um, but uh, he talks uh, about justice and home affairs, the UK's position, um, and uh, we started off by just uh, talking a bit about what the work of the Directorate General and the Council involved. My name is Raoul Uberreken. I'm uh, working in the uh, Council of the European Union in the General Secretariat, and I'm the Director for Home Affairs in the Director General for Justice and Home Affairs. So the, the, the DG uh, deals with justice and home affairs. What does that actually entail? You know, for somebody who isn't a specialist about the EU, what, what's the kind of work that the, the Commission does in this area? Well, content-wise, the, uh, the DG covers all issues ranging from justice, <laughs> uh, so justice policy, be it uh, criminal justice, civil justice, um, fundamental rights, state of protection, to home affairs issues, which uh, includes uh, all uh, migration-related issues, so borders, visas, uh, returns, uh, uh, asylum policy. Uh, and then on the security side of things, it's police cooperation and uh, customs cooperation, uh, terrorism, and so forth. So, so how much of that is the Commission proposing things... How much is it member states proposing things? Historically, it's been a quite intergovernmental area. It's been a quite intergovernmental area. That's why, I mean, as the there has been a big transformation for the uh, for the council secretariat in this, because as an intergovernmental policy area, when it started in Maastricht, it was not the commission that was in in charge, or it was not the centre of cooperation was not with the commission and commission initiatives, but with member states. Uh, and uh, so, and, and it's member states gathering in the council where the biggest focus was. So the council secretariat, in its support function to the works of the council, was um, actually, I think, the main focus of the work. Now that has shifted over time, following the, the different treaty changes over uh, Amsterdam, Nice, and, and most recently by the Lisbon Treaty where uh, obviously the whole policy area is uh, much more driven uh, by commission initiatives rather than initiatives coming from the member states. Um, now, you, you still see that the member states have a uh, rather important role in the more um, in the security field, if I can say so. Um, and you have some areas in the security field, especially in the area of uh, the fight against terrorism, which are exclusive competence of, of the member states. We call national security basically intelligence. Uh, the Union has no competence uh, in, in that area. Um, but also, of course, when it comes to uh, all other forms of law enforcement cooperation, uh, the Union having no law enforcement bodies, <laughs> uh, it's, it's obviously an area that is still very much driven in practice by the member states and the cooperation at member states at member state level. Um, in the migration area, 
we actually have a bit of a different uh, situation because I think in if you look at all the um, uh, all EU policy areas, the migration area is one which, by the way, over a very short period of time, uh, has developed uh, not only uh, a legislative key, uh, but also quite a number of um, uh, practical uh, operational tools um, at, at European level. I mean, it's an area where uh, you have directly applicable legislation in forms of, of regulations. I mean, what the border guards can and cannot do is not regulated by national law, it's regulated by the Schengen Border Code, which is directly applicable regulation. Uh, same goes for the visa area. Um, uh, in the asylum area, it's a bit less because there are still directives, but it's still quite harmonized. Um, then you have the uh, an operational arm in terms of uh, quite a number of databases at European level, Eurodac for asylum seekers, SIS uh, in terms of migration management, uh, VIS for uh, um, uh, visa applications, to name just a few. Um, and you have operational arms or the beginning of operational arms in, 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 in the form of, uh, of uh, union agencies, I think the most well-known being, being Frontex, uh, the Union's uh, External Border uh, Agency or the uh, EASO, the uh, European Asylum Support Office. Um, so there is quite a number of tools out there at European level uh, to, uh, to manage the, these policy areas. And I guess one question is how, how prepared, you, you talked about these tools and these instruments and these uh, agencies, how prepared was the European Union for the migrant crisis, the refugee crisis that we've seen, particularly over the last year? And is it something which has had to develop in response to that situation, or was it something which was already pretty much in place and could be uh, extended or expanded? Um, I think it's fair to say that any system, uh, be it the European Union or any any member state, even the most the West organized ones would have been totally overwhelmed with what happened last year. Um, uh, yes, I mean, some of those uh, instruments, uh, of the instruments in place, obviously uh, managed to give uh, responses to uh, the situation as it developed. Um, uh, I mean, Frontex has been deploying uh, common operations at the external borders for years now, so there's obviously a tool that is used, that member states know how to work with, and so on. But again, it's just the scale of what happened, which uh, was uh, extremely difficult to cope with. The other, ins- the, the other element, uh, one uh, I think often forgets in the debate, and saying, yes, we have a European <coughs> instrument, we have a European tool, which is the Frontex agency. But the Frontex agency is rather small. I don't know the exact figure, but I think there's around 300 people working uh, for Frontex. Now, if you look at how many people work in a member state's uh, border agency administration, we're more by the thousands than by the hundreds. So obviously the agency 
for its operations relies on contributions from member states. So when it says, well, now we have an operation in the Aegean Sea on the central Mediterranean, there's an operational plan that is done centrally by the agency, there's a coordination by the agency, but then the rollout of the operation relies on commitments by the member states to provide resources. Uh, to provide human resources, to provide material, etc., etc., and that's one of the been one of the recurrent themes over uh, the last month is member states are not sufficiently. I mean, the, the providing resources. It's been a topic that I mean that you find in Commission reports, or very much discussed of the European Parliament, saying that well. I mean, if we want to do more, we we can do more using European tools, but we need we need resources, resources from member states. So, is that about an incapacity on the part of member states, or is that uh, a polit- more a political issue that they don't want to, or a mixture? It, it's difficult for me to comment on that, but <laughs> but I, I, I'd say it's it's probably a mixture, depending on which member states you 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 look at. Yes. And it, depending also on the types of corporations that are sold or the areas uh, where the operation takes place. I mean, if you look at the positions member states take on how this crisis should be managed, they, some are probably more keen to send uh, their staff in operation taking place at in that specific geographical uh, area where, and where others would focus more on another geographical uh, area. Uh, I mean, we've also seen um, uh, bilateral corporations uh, taking place uh, outside of uh, European or at least European agency frameworks because it corresponded more to uh, the the political objectives of of some member states. I mean, it's not the mystery that uh, some member states deployed personnel uh, to uh, the uh, the Greek fire room border, but on the fire room side, uh, outside of any European uh, operation, and so on a bilateral basis, because that's where they see it probably reflects their policy views. I, we've talked, you've talked, at sort of the European level first, first and foremost. If we think about the UK's position in justice and home affairs, it's always been quite particular. It's had a series of opt-outs, which it then uh, stopped having and then immediately took up again in a slightly complex and arcane procedure. Where does the UK sit now in terms of its participation in European-level activity? How much is it uh, a case apart compared to other member states? In, in Justice and Home Affairs, we're used to uh, uh, quite a number of uh, um, strange cases, if I, if I can put it uh, that way, in the sense that uh, the UK is not alone in a, in a particular position. I mean, uh, Ireland has uh, also got a, a different regime. Uh, Denmark, again, has a, a, has a different one. Uh, and um, and on top of it, uh, we have um, uh, we have non-EU member states participating in quite a large area of of, um, uh, of the JHA policy, which are the Schengen associated associated states of, of Norway, Iceland, uh, Switzerland, Liechtenstein, um, uh, and even within the Schengen area. I mean, not 
all member states that um, can be uh, potentially members of the Schengen area are so because there are still evaluation processes and accession processes to the Schengen area ongoing. So it's an area that is, uh, that's been used very much to deal with uh, um, this sort of uh, variable geometry and so on. Um, but it's true that the UK, also because of the position size of the country, uh, is uh, is a bit of an uh, its its position is something that is well 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 known, is well reflected, and that's well taken into account in um, uh, in negotiations and and in the situation. Um, I mean, the UK pursues, in my view, really. Policy where it tries to be part of those policy areas where it sees an interest and stays out of of others. Um, uh, it's uh, it's a case by case in in, in civil law. Uh, when it comes generally, I'd say to approximation or some might say harmonisation of, of national laws, the UK has a rather uh, prudent approach uh, to that, to say the least. Uh, but where it comes to um, instruments of um, of cooperation, uh, the UK is always very much interested, and and often uh, really uh, one of the the proponents of 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 such instruments. I mean, the most recent case being uh, the EU PNR directive, uh, which the UK uh, pushed a lot for and argued a lot for, uh, which. A classical instrument of cooperation between law enforcement, uh, law enforcement, law enforcement bodies, and that's classically an area in which the UK is very much interested. And I assume uh, sees a lot of benefit in in, in cooperating. And we saw it with the uh, uh, the uh, Protocol 36 block opt out, uh, where the UK got the opportunity to get out of a whole part of the acquis and then opted back in to mainly cooperation instruments, um, Europol, Eurojust, uh, as agencies, plus other areas. Uh, and even in areas f- where it is excluded uh, from, from, corporate, from, from participation, such as the whole development of the um, migration part of the Schengen Acquis, it nevertheless tries to participate in practice where it sees an interest. I mean, there are possibilities under the Frontex regulation, for example, for uh, the UK and Ireland to participate in operations. Um, obviously, I suppose, because the UK sees an interest in, uh, in, in helping sometimes to protect the, the, uh, the outer borders of, uh, of, uh, of the Union, but which are actually yeah, the borders of, of the Schengen area, of which is it, it is not part. Um, so it's, um, it's a very pragmatic approach to, to, to things. And it's interesting you're talking also about non-member states being involved in this. How important is membership in the existing regime for participating? The um, Membership of the EU? Yeah, the... Um, um, the, the Schengen area, when it was set up, um, 
had to incorporate uh, some non-EU members because of pre-existing arrangements, uh, in particular the Nordic Passport Union, which for the Nordic countries was important and they didn't want to give it up by joining uh, the Schengen Corporation, which, by the way, the Schengen Corporation happened at the beginning totally outside of the Union, uh, the, the union Treaty Framework. It was only incorporated afterwards. Um, so we had to find a way how to make this association possible. Now, in the way things are run in day-to-day business is that these association agreements uh, create what is called the Mixed Committee, uh, which is a meeting of the uh, EU28 member states plus the Schengen-associated countries. Uh, now, the um, uh, decision shaping the discussions are held in mixed com- committee format, but the decision taking is reserved for the member states. Um, so you can have lengthy discussions on a text, uh, but then that point over, um, the Schengen associated countries are sent out of the room uh, and then decision-taking takes place among, among the 28. And if you look at uh, agendas of meetings, actually all points that are under mixed committee format are also taken later on in the day at EU 28 format in a formal setting. Uh, and that's where the decisions are taken. So those countries, although they can be in the discussions, they cannot be part of those decisions, but nevertheless have to accept them and have to implement them by virtue of, of, of those association agreements. So they sort of they are obliged to then implement what, what, what we have, even with I mean, clauses like so-called guillotine clause, where if they don't accept a development of the Schengen acquis, they are forced to leave the whole Schengen acquis. So membership matters for having a vote. So you have some voice. No, no membership, no vote. No membership, no votes. No membership, no vote. When, when we when even, I mean, to to be uh, to be to be frank, uh, I mean, when there is a, an issue that is really difficult and contentious among uh, countries, and the debate takes place even in mixed committee format, when delegations count votes and see where majorities lie, well, the f- we'll try to take into account as much as possible, obviously, the opinion also of the four Schengen associated countries, but they don't have a vote. So when it comes hard on hard, their say, in the end, is less than is it less. would be if they just in a slightly different area, one of the, I, I suppose, thinking about people listening to this podcast, one of the things that they'll know best in British debate would be the European arrest warrant. Yes. Uh, the UK participates in that. Uh, how, does, how, do, how do you evaluate the success of the European arrest warrant? Because I think one of the things in the British debate was that, uh, that often they, they seem to be the serving of demands from other countries for crimes which seem to be fairly uh, small crimes which you know in the UK wouldn't either be a crime or wouldn't seem to be worth asking for somebody to be extradited back to uh, first state. I mean is that a fair 
is it a fair characterization of the system? Uh, and you know, more generally, do you think the system works well? In, I mean, in in the in the law enforcement area, and more particularly in the area of uh, judicial uh, judicial cooperation in, in criminal criminal matters, I think the, uh, the European arrest warrant is by far the most successful instrument uh, the union uh, the union has. I mean, if you look at the other instruments that were adopted in. Uh, in, in uh, other areas, like mutual recognition of financial sanctions and, and, and other things. I mean, there's quite a number of instruments out there which are hardly used uh, in, in practice, whereas the European arrest warrant is. So I think just the numbers, if you look at the statistics, I mean, they show that this is an important instrument. It is a very important tool uh, to, uh, to fight crime. Um, and I think the general evaluation of the instruments and the number of evaluations reports that have been, been done on it is that it is functioning rather well. Um, there has been occasional criticism, uh, also from uh, uh, human rights groups uh, on that, uh, in terms of uh, uh, procedural guarantees that are lacking uh, in their view or in terms of what you said the sort of proportionality uh, of, of, of the usage of the instruments um, the union tried to address some of those issues over time uh, I mean there's a few instruments that were adopted recently uh, in uh, approximating um, uh, rights of the defense have incorporated specific chapters on the rights of people subject to arrest warrants, European arrest warrants, for example. Uh, so I mean, the union is not immune to the criticism. On the contrary, it's trying to, 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 to address it step by step. And this, the same goes for uh, uh, the question of the proportionality. I mean, one instrument that um, the union has adopted that will come, I think, into application as of mid next year which is the European uh, um, Investigation Order, um, so which is more a tool that is sought to, um, uh, what that is used to seek evidence from another country. Um, there are a number of provisions in there uh, which will allow, in certain cases, to have a less intrusive mechanism than issuing a European arrest warrant. For example, if you would just want to hear somebody in initial stages as a witness uh, or maybe as somebody accused of a crime, you could do it more easily via, via um, video conferencing and other tools so as to avoid that the, people, the person has to be apprehended, incarcerated, <laughs> transferred, physically relocated and so on. So, um, uh, so I think some of the criticism is, is probably fair. Uh, I think it has been also exaggerated to the way it has been <laughs> uh, in, 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 in the UK with some media. Uh, uh, but, I mean, there are a number of issues and, and the union has been addressing them, yes. Thank you for that. Uh, just kind of as a more general kind of question, and as I appreciate you, you don't speak for the, the commission or for the DG, but uh, what's the... Uh, 
sort of feeling the debates in Brussels around the referendum uh, and how much have institutions taken a position, will take a position, and is it something that they they leave to the UK to decide, or is I mean, is it a debate, or is it something that's not not discussed? It's. I mean, it's not for me to speak on behalf of, of, of any institution, obviously. Uh, I leave it up to, to others to take positions in the name of institutions. If, if, if um, uh, But, um, I mean, among officials working in, 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 in Brussels, in the different institutions, with Commission, Council or, or European Parliament, um, it is a topic that is that is discussed. Uh, I mean, uh, it is a topic that is, that is discussed. There is an interest in it. There are information sessions here and there about what does the the deal that was reached mean? Uh, what does it entail? Um, I mean, b- both a question of of general interest or a question because you work in a policy area that's touched by it. Or people that have a very personal interest sometimes in 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 what might happen, you know, the whole benefit issue, which is my area of competence. But I mean, it was one of the important aspects. Well, people are interested in what it might entail uh, for them, as you can imagine, it's quite a number of um, uh, international people uh, in Brussels. Uh, so so it it is an issue that is that is that is discussed, and people have interest in. Yeah. I'll go and find some other people to see if I can speak on behalf of this. Well, thank you very much for that, and uh, thank you for talking with me. You're welcome, sir. Thank you very much.